Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. In late 1990, as he was preparing to lead the Chicago Bulls to their first ever NBA championship, a 27-year-old Michael Jordan found himself under pressure to take a political stand. It centred upon the Senate race in his home state of North Carolina, where the Democratic candidate, Harvey Gantt, an African-American, was running against the incumbent Republican, Jesse Helms, an unabashed racist who'd voted against the Civil Rights Act. Gantt hoped that an endorsement from Jordan, who even then was one of the most famous people in America with a line of Air Jordan footwear that helped transform him from athlete to icon, would swing undecided voters in his favour. But Jordan ultimately declined to come out in support of Gantt, explaining his decision with a phrase that came to haunt him. Republicans buy sneakers too. Michael Jordan may have been speaking off the cuff, but those four words, Republicans buy sneakers too, neatly capture a principle that America's biggest corporations have followed for decades. Getting too involved in partisan politics is bad for business. However, as the Biden administration inches towards 100 days, that calculus appears to have shifted. This is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prado, The Economist's US editor, and each week we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, is it worrying or welcome that corporations are playing an increasingly prominent role in American politics? The furore over restrictive voting rights legislation in Georgia, passed by that state's Republican-controlled legislature at the start of this month, has by now spread far and wide. And this week, some powerful new voices joined the chorus, a slew of Fortune 500 companies and their CEOs. But is such activism helpful? Or is it, to use Mitch McConnell's phrase, in danger of setting up a woke parallel government? In this episode, we'll hear from Jeffrey Sonnenfeld, a Yale professor who played a key role in this week's corporate protests. We'll be taken on a magical mystery tour of the past 150 years by The Economist's Schumpeter columnist, who's been writing about the history of companies who choose to make their politics known. And we'll get a picture of how business and politics collide on three other continents, Asia, Africa and Europe. With me as ever to discuss all of this are Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York bureau chief, and John Fasman, the US digital editor. Charlotte, how are things with you in New York? I'm fine, though I've been shocked by some of the news this week coming out of different police departments. There's a video that's just been released showing Chicago police shooting a 13-year-old Adam Toledo then I've been listening to bits of the Derek Chauvin trial. Um, the medical witness brought on by the defense seems particularly inept. And then, of course, there was the killing of Dante Wright outside of Minneapolis. And so all these are just shameful episodes, frankly, for American law enforcement. And there's some evidence that uh, more reform may follow, but it doesn't seem fast enough. 
Yeah, I've been following all three of those cases closely too, because I've been working on a long piece about race and racism in America, which is going to be published in The Economist next month to coincide with the anniversary of George Floyd's death. One of the things that's so striking, both in the Dante Wright case and in George Floyd's case, is that the police officers responsible have actually been charged. And as you know, John Fasman, in 98% of cases when police officers kill people in America, no charges against those officers are forthcoming. John, this is your special subject. I'm sure you've been following these cases closely as well. I have. I have. Uh, I've been covering police for a long time, and I've seen far too many of these videos. And I think the Adam Toledo one is the single worst police shooting I've ever seen. That may be because I have a son who is gangly like Adam was and is about Adam's age, but it just it just was, it was horrific to watch. Um, on the Dante Wright case, I think that the speed with which Kim Potter, who's the veteran police officer who shot Dante, the speed with which he was charged was really quite striking. As you mentioned, John, in only 2% of cases in which police kill someone are they charged, and it often takes quite a while. And, you know, concomitant with that, you saw last week, New Mexico became the second state to markedly restrict the use of qualified immunity as a defense. And this is the judicial doctrine that says that unless police violate a clearly established law, they can't be found liable for violating someone's rights in the course of their duty. Now, that was invented to protect police from frivolous lawsuits, but it has since evolved into just an enormous shield. Uh, There is a Trump-appointed judge, Don Willett, in Texas, who said that qualified immunity seems a lot like unqualified impunity. And you're starting to see states pair that back. So while it was really just horrific to watch a 13-year-old boy be shot to death and another young black man being shot by American police, there continues to be this movement toward police reform and toward police accountability that I think is really salutary in the long run for the relationship between police and and the communities they police. Right. I guess it's just a question of how quickly it happens. It takes so long for some of these efforts to go forward. And as you point out, it's really a local issue. There's not there's some stuff that can be done on the federal level, but a lot of it is achieved by states and localities, which means that progress is patchy and at a slow pace. You're absolutely right. It does take time. But, but you know, I know people who've been pushing for qualified immunity reforms for decades. And, and to see the speed with which this reform effort, the current one, has really shifted the needle is striking. It's not going to bring back Dante Wright or Philando Castile or George Floyd or Adam Toledo. But I think we are really in a period of striking and quick change in the relationship between police and the policed. Well, let's hope so. And police reform aside, Fasman, what's been going on with you? Uh, What's been going on with me? My children returned to full-time in-person school this week uh, for the first time in a year. That's huge. Yeah, I got to say, I miss them. I really like the ritual of getting up from my desk and making them lunch. I miss them. Um, Charlotte, are we ready to discuss on the podcast why you've been dressing like Will Farrell from Anchorman or not yet? <laughs> uh, yeah. My Zoom wardrobe has either reached its zenith or nadir, depending on one's point of view. But the upstairs-downstairs contrast between my tailored blazers and my running shorts continues to astonish those around me. And Charlotte, one of those many Zoom meetings you've been on has been with Jeffrey Sonnenfeld, who's an academic at Yale University and writes a lot about the intersection of politics and business. Can you tell us a bit more about him? 
Jeffrey Sonnenfeld is a Yale professor at the School of Management, which is the business school there. And he's been organizing gatherings of CEOs for years, not particularly publicized meetings, but they'll be titans of industry who gather um, after a particular crisis, you know, in the wake of Enron or the financial crisis. There were a few after the election in 2020. And he organized a call over the weekend with a group of of chief executives. Dozens ended up being able to make the call on short notice to discuss the voting restrictions in Georgia. And so he's been thinking a lot about how CEOs are engaging politically in the general American public sphere and how their role might be evolving and, and what's driving them to do so. So I asked him whether the actions of these executives was really driven more by corporate self-interest or by a sense of moral imperative. Happily, they are extricably intertwined in this case. The morals and the patriotic values of individual CEOs is an issue here. Second element has to do with the brand statement of some of these companies, what they stand for is at stake here too. A third one, though, is the self-interest piece. It's not the threat of boycotts. They're past that. They they really are. But the self-interest now is that it makes the CEO's job impossible if you are driven by these wedge issues. These CEOs are not xenophobes. They encourage immigration, especially these H-1B visa issues last summer. They didn't want those divisive issues. They're in favor of gun safety. They're in favor of, they didn't want these divisive bathroom bills a few years ago. And they also don't want angry, divided workforces pointing fingers at each other uh, and hostile communities to serve uh, and customers that don't trust each other is that it makes it unworkable just for their own self-interest. Social harmony is in the interest of these business enterprises as well as in the quality of life of American society. So that's why they do it. And increasingly they're seeing that they're not defined by the GOP anymore. Sure, they would like taxes to be lower, but that's hardly what's driving them. Is there any evidence of hypocrisy that you see? When I last looked at the numbers in detail, there was a bit of a discrepancy between the volume of public statements on broad issues that affect American society and the narrowness of giving, particularly lobbying spending among big companies. It was really targeted mainly towards the issues that directly affected their bottom line, whether it was antitrust issues for big tech, regulatory issues for different people in the energy space, and so on. Do you see any hypocrisy there that there's a difference between public statements and behind-the-scenes political giving and lobbying? Lobbyists in the media don't understand where the CEO's uh, um, priorities are. Well, lobbyists are paid by the CEOs, right? So um, the lo- I'll give you an example. On immigration, the lobbyists were terrible, so the CEOs had to intercede is the H-1B visa issues, even for in our industry, in higher education. So CEOs themselves had poor lobbying positioning. But what the CEOs did is when they went to the White House, and I know this firsthand, not secondhand, firsthand, they said, we're not going to outsource these jobs if we can't staff them back to India and China. If our workers can't work here in California and, and New York and elsewhere, we're taking up satellite facilities that we're leasing the space now in Vancouver and Toronto on U.S. time zones and we're working on the infrastructure to make them capable, we just hop over the border. So that's how they, the lobbyists were inept, but the CEOs overruled their own lobbyists to get it done. Do 
Do you see any risk for companies in becoming increasingly political as we enter what seems to be perhaps the beginning of a new way of thinking about the relationship between government and business? Uh, I see it as all pure great opportunity. They don't need to get into issues that aren't related to their workforce and the quality of life of their communities. Those are the issues that have strategic significance in addition to their financial and technology and infrastructure needs, but they're all related to what's in the strategic context of the business. So that's, as long as it's related to that, CEOs are smart focusing on that. I don't see a problem there. This is not to say that CEOs are being defined by the Democratic Party, uh, that many of these CEOs, uh, some of them like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, but many of them don't. Uh, so I don't want to suggest that there's a realignment along the lines of Republicans versus Democrats. They're just, since Herbert Hoover, and certainly through Eisenhower years, big business has been identified with Republican Party. They don't represent Republican Party anymore, but the big business has fallen back to where they were as the true progressives. Somehow people in your line of work and my line of work have gotten confused and labeled democratic socialists as progressives. They never were. Eugene V. Debs was never a progressive, but who was, was, you know, Teddy Roosevelt. And that's where Joe Biden is and Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar. And that's, that's where the business community largely is right now, but it's not defined by party. So it's a kind of new gangly adolescence as they're trying to redefine who their identity is, free of the parentage of political parties. John, Charlotte was pushing Jeffrey Sonnenfeld there on whether companies are acting out of concern for their bottom line, so a fairly narrow kind of self-interest, or acting because their CEOs or employees feel some sort of moral concern. And he said, well, there's no trade-off here because the two come together. But it's very easy to imagine cases where those two imperatives would point in different directions, right? In which case, which direction do you think companies would take? I think companies would always follow their bottom line interests. I mean, I think that's their principal responsibility. I think you saw that a bit in the way that different CEOs spoke out about the Georgia Voting Rights Bill, right? On the one hand, you have this very sort of uh, verbose, high-minded statement put out by Jamie Dimon. But that's different than how Ed Bastian, who is the CEO of Delta, and Coca-Cola's CEO reacted, right? Ed Bastian initially put out a quite mild statement in which he said, you know, we had our concerns, our concerns were taken care of. And then he put out a much stronger one after that. I think what you saw in those statements was a concern with their workforce, right? Delta and Coca-Cola are both major employers in Georgia, in particular around the Atlanta area. I presume they have a workforce that is heavily African-American, and I think they were concerned with keeping their employees happy. Now that, as Jeffrey Sonnenfeld said, happened to align with doing the right thing morally, which is speaking out in defense of voting rights. But that won't always be the case. And when it is not the case, I would expect companies to follow their bottom line interest. Yeah, there was that very interesting test case. Was it last year or the year before, Fasman, when the NBA came down very hard on Daryl Morey, who was at the time was the general manager of the Houston Rockets, for what was some fairly mild criticism of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, and of course, the NBA sells a lot of basketball or rights to basketball games in China and didn't like a prominent figure within American basketball speaking out on that at all. So they're clearly, I think, where the bottom line and the moral interest collide. The, the bottom line tends to win out. Be that as it may, the Republican Party has tended to think of big American companies as its natural constituency. That seems to be changing. 
I think that is shifting a bit in a couple of ways. Number one is Donald Trump's presidency was extraordinarily disruptive and unpredictable. And businesses like stability. I think they may even like stability more than a slightly lower marginal tax rate. And so you saw business becoming more open to donating to Democrats than they had been in the past. I think the other thing that probably makes business nervous is the willingness of politicians to use state power vindictively against businesses that exercise their First Amendment speech rights, right? You saw that when Georgia's legislature threatened to revoke Delta's uh, tax break on jet fuel. You saw that when baseball decided to move its all-star game to Denver and Ted Cruz and Mike Lee and others started talking about revoking baseball's antitrust exemption. I think that makes business very nervous. The other thing that's happened is, as my colleague Idris Kaloon, who's been on the show, has pointed out, is the rise of small dollar donations means that Republicans, of course, continue to welcome big corporate giving, but they also have a new form of cash. And so they're a little bit less sensitive than they were. All right. Thanks both. We'll hear a bit more about the history of the relationship between companies and politics from our colleague Henry Trix in just a moment. But first, the usual reminder, if you're enjoying this, then please do subscribe to The Economist. If you don't already, you'll find the best offer at economist.com slash uspod. In this edition, you can read Henry's cover story on companies and politics. There's a fascinating article in the science section about the creation of part human, part monkey embryos. And ahead of the Football League Cup in England on April 25th, our data team examines whether there's evidence of a curse on Tottenham Hotspur, John Shields' team. To be seen as cursed, a team must be good enough to inspire realistic dreams of glory, but useless enough not to fulfil them. Economist.com slash USPod is the link to subscribe. It's in the notes for this episode. The history of companies meddling in American politics is as old as the history of the country, but the ways in which businesses have made their influence known have gone through several distinct eras since the Declaration of Independence. And we may now be, in the early stages, of a new one. Henry Trix is The Economist's Schumpeter columnist. Over the course of the last 150 years or so, the power of business uh, with regards to the state has, has waxed and waned. But basically, the unwritten rule is that there is a separation between boardroom and the stateroom. And basically, businessmen would prefer to influence politics quietly rather than kind of preaching it from the boardroom. Of course, they do weigh in discreetly on matters that directly affect them, such as taxes or regulation or, or even the need for um, immigrants as workers. But generally, they, they've avoided grandstanding on politics. When they do intervene, it, it's, it's almost kind of godfatherly. That's been the trend, at least um, over many decades. Uh, a great example is back in 1964, when Martin Luther King was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. I accept the Nobel Prize for Peace 
at a moment when 22 million Negroes of the United States are engaged in a creative battle to end the long night of racial injustice. Now, Martin Luther King uh, is from Atlanta. He was the first person from Atlanta ever to get the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, And Atlanta, of course, is also the home of Coca-Cola. The trouble is, is that the great and the good in Atlanta did not want to give any kind of homecoming reception to Martin Luther King. Um, And Coca-Cola realized that this could be a tremendous embarrassment to the company. Uh, Its former president, Robert Woodruff, basically went to the top executives of the companies and said, guys, look, you have to help out here. We have to make sure that a banquet for Dr. King goes ahead. And sure enough, it did. And in the end, almost 1,600 people attended. Dr. King began his speech with a nod to the size of the crowd. This marvelous hometown welcome and honor will remain dear to me as long as the cords of memory shall lengthen. In the 1970s, another Nobel laureate, Milton Friedman, got hold of the business community with his credo that executives' sole responsibility was actually to their owners, that is, the shareholders, and not to a broader set of stakeholders. Friedman was an avowedly small government kind of guy. The great achievements of civilization have not come from government bureaus. And his strictures coincided with the start of a long process to shrink government, um, which gave rise to deregulation and the emergence of the cult of the celebrity CEO, uh, which really took root in the 1980s and the 1990s. Yet even as this took place and the, the, the power of business increased, businessmen still held their tongues on political matters. In fact, they just put their faith increasingly in paid lobbyists And they used industry groups like the Business Roundtable, which had been started in the early 1970s, quietly to kind of further their interests rather than grabbing the megaphone. Since the turn of the 21st century, though, something new has been happening. As well as behind the scenes lobbying and the the political donations that companies make, CEOs are increasingly speaking out on a variety of issues, including politics, with a candor that would have horrified their 20th century predecessors. But it was really when the US entered the gravitational field of the Trump era that the volume of CEO activism really increased. It started with the travel ban at the very outset of um, the Trump administration, when at least 153 relatively big companies spoke out against it. And in the vast majority of instances, it was the CEO directly who took the stand. 
same system that oppresses our immigrants. It's the same system that destroys black lives every day. But it was really the Black Lives Matter movement that moved CEOs more than anything. And they, they really rushed to push out statements condemning police brutality in that case. And an extension of this is what we've seen in Georgia this week. One of the intriguing questions is why is this happening? One reason why businessmen feel they have the confidence to speak out is because trust in business is actually relatively high, especially compared to trust in government. So there is a sense, surveys suggest that the public at large think that CEOs should speak out when governments don't fix society's problems. The problem with this sort of advocacy, though, is that there's not a lot of clarity about its impact, either on the issues that the businessmen are standing up against or on the businesses in whose name they speak. One thing is clear, this is public relations. For good or ill, this does raise the company's profile. And in a lot of cases, it may be well-meant, that's for sure. The trouble is that it's also muddied by charges of hypocrisy, grandstanding, mission creep, the idea that uh, bosses are behaving like kind of mini Caesars with responsibility for all aspects of society. They're unelected and their interests are not necessarily the same as those of the people who they claim to be standing up for. John, as we heard a bit earlier, Mitch McConnell, the Senate minority leader, is worried about woke capitalism run amok. Let's take that concern seriously. Where is the harm, as far as Mitch McConnell is concerned, with what Delta, Coke, other companies are doing at the moment? Well, our leader this week points out correctly, I think, that you always want to be leery of corporate state tie-ups, right? There is a risk of not less of state capture than there's a risk that companies that espouse values favorable to whatever political party is now in power will do well at the expense of others. I think that's a danger. And that's a danger that's worth being aware of, right? I don't think, though, that that is what is happening here right now at this particular moment. Um, I saw Mitch McConnell's comments as an attempt to keep business on side, as an attempt also to intimidate, right? He said there would be serious consequences for companies that get involved in politics. Unfortunately, I don't really see what cards he's holding. And so I, I sort of discount the seriousness with which Mitch McConnell makes that threat. And again, I come back to the idea that businesses serve their bottom line, right? And to the extent that we are living in a polarized era in which the opportunity to stay silent and to take the you know, Republicans buy shoes too attitude is just not available. Businesses have to choose between supporting, you know, a political party that is disproportionately dependent on older Americans, older white Americans, and supporting one that is disproportionately supported by younger, diverse ones. I think they're thinking about the future of their customer base, and that's what's that's what's driving them in part to make the sorts of statements that they're making. 
Charlotte, I went back and looked at that Milton Friedman article that he wrote in 1970, where this idea that business only has responsibilities to its owners or its shareholders uh, comes from, or at least where it was popularised. And it's kind of a fascinating article. Quite a lot of it, I would submit, doesn't stand up terribly well now. So he begins by saying that businessmen who take seriously their responsibility for providing employment, eliminating discrimination, avoiding pollution, and whatever else may be the catchwords of the contemporary crop of reformers are, quote, preaching pure and unadulterated socialism. Um, a lot of companies nowadays take quite seriously their um, responsibilities, for example, to minimise to the extent that they can their carbon emissions. In Friedman's view, that would be socialism. Yeah, I think actually there's a little bit less space between Milton Friedman and some of what you might see now in that Friedman talked about the responsibility to the owners, right, to the shareholders of companies. And I think when companies are thinking about carbon emissions, they're seeing the writing on the wall and they look around the world and an increasing number of advanced economies have some kind of emissions pricing scheme either in place or proposed. And so if you're not thinking about, you know, the risk that policy becomes much more stringent on climate and catches a company off guard is a huge, huge risk to shareholders. And so you do need to prepare for that. And so I think that actually is perfectly aligned with with the, the purpose of the company as Friedman lays out. And I think one thing that's interesting is that many executives, when they talk about why they're becoming active now, they do say that they see their activities as being in the long-term interests of their shareholders, that having a society that's functional, having government regulation that's predictable, all of those things are easier business environment. So I think that this is a, a really interesting debate about whether there is really a substantive shift among American companies towards you know what you might call stakeholder capitalism as opposed to Friedman's ideal my opinion is that it's much more grey. OK, we'll be back in a moment to hear from economist correspondents on three different continents about how business and politics collide in other parts of the world. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. America's not the only country where businesses have to make decisions about how loud or quiet they're going to be on political issues. We asked three of our colleagues on three different continents to give us a picture of how this works where they are. John McDermott is in South Africa, Noah Snyder in Japan, and first up, Wendelin von Bredo from her sunny living room in Germany's capital city. So here in Berlin, businesses actually very rarely dabble in politics. This is related to the fact that business and politics are very separate worlds. There is basically no senior business figure 
who has become a politician, which is very different, of course, to America. And businesses basically get on with doing business and trading uh, vigorously because Germany is a big export nation and politics do their thing. Of course, an exception is anything that concerns business, that concerns taxation or regulation. Then businesses will get involved, but indirectly they will do it through their business associations. On the other hand, most senior business leaders will have a direct line to Angela Merkel and will call her privately. But then, of course, that's been not really known to the public. So from the public point of view, it's done either indirectly or not at all. Here in South Africa, businesses are generally reticent about political issues. And the reason for that is because nearly 30 years after the end of apartheid, many businesses are still disproportionately run and owned by white South Africans. And the government is, of course, run by the mostly black African National Congress. And we saw the reluctance of businesses to speak out most acutely over what's known here as the state capture scandal. This was when, under the previous president, President Jacob Zuma, vast amounts of state-owned enterprises and government departments were taken over by his cronies, his people, and essentially were looted for private gain. And this caused great damage to the South African economy and great damage to South Africa's reputation. So you would think that business would be quick to speak out about it, but they they weren't. And I think that is in part because of a kind of inbuilt reluctance to, to take on the government and a preference to keep their head down. So here in Japan, businesses tend to steer clear of hot button social issues and, and political debates. They do, of course, influence and, and, and lobby politicians behind the scenes, but they tend to be more interested in policies and, and politics that impact their bottom lines rather than wading into social controversies. In part, it's because there isn't quite the same expectation that businesses ought to have a stance or that businesses uh, need to take a moral or ethical position on some of these issues. In part, it's because the debate over social issues tends to be at a lower volume and less public, perhaps less uh, highly confrontational than it is in the U.S., but I think also some of the reasons uh, that U.S. companies cite for taking stances, in, in, in particular pressure from uh, younger consumers and pressure from their workforces, are less relevant or less pertinent here in Japan. For one thing, there are fewer younger consumers. The market here is 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 older. And for another, younger people in Japan are, are, aren't as uh, socially progressive. So there's less pressure coming from, from consumers on, on companies. Japanese executives also tend to think that, for example, human rights issues outside of Japan are, are far enough away that they don't necessarily need to take a stance. And, and, and it's been instructive, for example, to watch American and European companies taking stances with regard to, to the abuses of Uyghurs in Xinjiang and, and, and Japanese companies largely staying silent to protect their business interests in China. Charlotte, as we heard from our colleagues in Japan and South Africa and Germany there, I think this phenomenon of business leaders in America 
feeling that they need to take a stance on important political issues is unusual. And I think it's even unusual compared with the America of you know, 20, 30 years ago. I mean, it's hard to imagine the Delta CEO being able to say, a la Michael Jordan, well, Republicans buy airfares too, so we're just not going to touch this thing. Why is America different on this? I do think that the the relationship between companies and political giving informs this, as I mentioned in the past. But listening to Vendeline and from Germany and, and Noah in Japan in particular, I was struck by the way that they said that companies don't really engage publicly in politics. But Germany and Japan are two places that are really poster children for stakeholder capitalism, in which companies have a very different relationship with government more broadly. And the idea is that companies should pursue private gain in a way that benefits the public. And Noah had a great piece in The Economist recently, which described Shibusawa, this 19th century industrialist who is a father of Japanese capitalism who espoused this. Um, and this is beginning to change a bit. But it, it highlighted hearing that in Japan and Germany, companies aren't particularly outwardly political, but with the knowledge that they do uh, engage in stakeholder capitalism. It made me wonder whether in America, we're kind of compensating for something where you have companies that really want to um, have a public point of view and want to weigh in on political issues. And so I think what's fascinating in America is whether this shift in rhetoric will be matched by a broader shift in really how companies define their business and define their strategies, because it's kind of a mirror image of what you see in advanced some advanced economies elsewhere. How much do you think it's down to the fact that the federal government, at least, often can't do the sorts of things that Democratic voters in particular want it to do? So, for example, there's no federal tax on carbon in the US. And so Democratic voters think that they have enough sway and numerically they, they ought to to make something like a carbon tax or at least some serious federal climate change policy happen. But because of the way power is distributed in America and because of the overweighting of rural Americans in the Senate and the Electoral College, actually even when Democrats win elections by you know millions of votes, they don't have enough power to do those things. And so almost as a compensation, they put pressure on businesses to do some of those things that they're unable to get done through the normal political mechanism? I think one of the things that that is important and different about companies becoming even more engaged in politics at this particular time is that there is a much more interventionist style that is gaining support in Washington. And of course, Biden's infrastructure bill is a main example of this because it includes a pretty hefty dose of industrial policy and favoritism for American companies. But also you see movement on the Republican side. Tom Cotton and and Marco Rubio have supported um, intervention in supply chains. Cotton, together with Mitt Romney, has supported a, a federal minimum wage that's rising and indexed to inflation. Josh Hawley has weighed in on a tax credit for workers linked to hours worked. So I think that Companies are in a pretty difficult situation, actually, because they need to figure out how to navigate all this, both the incredibly polarized political atmosphere and the very real possibility that there may be policies passed that impact the 
structure of American capitalism, and that might be in a big way or a small way. So it's a really, really active time. All right. Thank you both. Let's leave that there. Before I let you go, I have a quiz for you. We've heard about Coca-Cola a few times already in this episode. And in 2005, The Economist reported on another big moment for the soda giant when, for the first time in its history, its market capitalization was overtaken by that of its arch rival, PepsiCo. Our correspondent took the opportunity of rubbing salt into the wound with a story about one of Coke's most notable investors, writing that, when Warren Buffett, Coke's longtime investor, told the board that he had visited a pizza parlor in Omaha, Nebraska with his grandson, only to discover it served nothing but Pepsi, Coke's bosses acted swiftly to remove their arch rival from the menu and replace it with Coke. If only the Atlanta-based company had moved as determinedly in response to changing consumer tastes, it might have avoided a humiliating reversal in fortunes, which, in internet parlance, I think that's what you call a sick burn. Anyway, for our quiz, we're looking back to another sore moment for the Georgian fizzy drinks giant. At one point in its history, amid much fanfare, the company discontinued its original recipe and replaced it with an updated flavour, which it called, plainly enough, New Coke. Billed as bolder, rounder and more harmonious than original Coke, the new formula did not prove popular with consumers, prompting tens of thousands of complaints. And 79 days later, Coke executives sheepishly announced that they'd be bringing the original recipe back. My question to you, in which year did all of this happen? It was when I was a kid. I remember maybe 85. Yeah, sometime in the 80s. Yeah, I don't know exactly when. I'd, I'll say 83, arbitrarily. Um, you're, I mean, Charlotte, you were close. Fasman got it on the nose. It was 1985, so a point for you. New Coke did limp on for a while after that. It was renamed Coke 2 in 1992, but was finally discontinued in July 2002. Question two, sticking with a fizzy drink theme, Coke is famously headquartered in Atlanta, Georgia, as indeed are dozens of other big American corporations, including CNN, Delta, which we've been talking about, UPS, Spanx, and Hooters. But in which state is PepsiCo headquartered? Extra points if you can name the town. New York. New York. It's in um, it's in like Westchester somewhere. Um, it's not Yonkers. No. Do you know John? It's right in your backyard. I have no idea. The fact that it's in Westchester and I live in Westchester and I have no idea suggests that perhaps my journalistic skills are not as sharp as they should be. Charlotte gets a point for this one. It is in Westchester County, in the town of, of Purchase, yes. or the hamlet of Purchase, in Harrison, New York. That's literally 15 minutes away from where I live. God. <laughs> I'm so thrilled, John, to have beaten you in something vaguely food-related, though the lowbrow nature of these companies' products, I guess, shouldn't give me too much pride that I know where the manufacturer of Cheetos is located, but I have no idea about more important aspects of American history. It's not just food related. It's, I mean, you, you've beaten me in my own backyard, almost literally in my own backyard. Okay, thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, John. Thanks, John. Thank you. Thanks also to our engineer, Nico Rofast, and our editor, Pete Norton. If you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review and check out The Jab, our new podcast reporting on the global vaccination race. And finally, a listener request. Next week, Anne McElvoy will be talking to a man who might just rank as the most experienced political consultant on the planet, former US Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, on our sister podcast, The Economist Asks. 
our question is, what would you like to ask him? Let us know at radio at economist.com. Thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.